Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 140. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Getting ready for your ultimate summer vacation. School is winding down. The days are getting longer. Mia took the greatest summer vacation of all time. And that inspired us to discuss 2001's. 2001's? The Princess Diaries. Until we reviewed it for this show, admittedly, I had not seen this film. But I can't believe that this movie is 20 years old. Well, you hadn't seen it, but you must have heard of this. Well, I mean, mean, yeah, of course. Julie Andrews came out of semi-retirement for this one. I mean, It had to at least have been on your radar, even though you're not the target demographic. Right. I mean, yeah, I was 15 years old when the movie came out, so I'm not going to rush to the movie theaters to see it, but you know what The Princess Diaries is. But I'm saying, like, I think the movie, and, and maybe this spoils the review a little bit, but I feel like the movie is still so relevant that I can't believe... Like, I, I keep thinking this movie is maybe 10 years old. I can't believe this movie is 20 years old. Well, I mean, it is a timeless story, right? It's a Cinderella story. I mean, it's, and we're going to get into this. It's pretty much a straight remake of Pretty Woman, except for the whole hooker thing. Yeah, yes, it's very true. But both Disney movies, funny enough, one day we are going to have to really like delve into the touchstone stuff. And we'll talk about, I mean, there's going to come a day where we're going to review Pretty Woman on Monoreal Radio. How weird is that for you? I mean, it technically isn't. She's a Disney princess. She's a Disney princess. <laughs> well, no, Richard Gere is not royalty. She doesn't marry into royalty, but she's a Di- she's a Disney princess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that. But so is Anastasia, and you're gonna give me that one. Uh, she, I'm okay. Okay, so we'll do Anastasia so, before we do Pretty Woman, probably. Mm, no, that's an acquisition film. That's like a princess through marriage. Like, Pretty Woman, like, Julie, Julia Roberts is a Disney princess in Pretty Woman because it was a Disney film. It didn't have the castle, but that was a touchstone. It was shot at the Disney Studios. It's a Cinderella story. Gary Marshall did it, so it feels even more like I am having a moment here. (laughs) What an incredible two minutes to start Monoreal Radio. Okay, did you see this movie in theaters, or was this one that you caught on VHS? Because remember, it's 2001, so DVD's a thing, but you're still renting VHS tapes. I actually didn't see it in theaters, and I didn't see it on VHS. I saw it on DVD, and I was all about it, because I knew of it. I wanted to see it because of Julie Andrews, and at the time, like it was right in the wheelhouse. I fell in love with it right away. Yeah. But the question is, does it hold up now that I'm not a teenager looking up to Anne Hathaway in this film. All right, yeah, that's what we're going to discuss. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monorail Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. and shop for all of your straw charm needs. We meet Mia, a self-proclaimed social outcast who can barely make it through a day of school without embarrassing herself. 
Mia prefers to remain invisible, so when her estranged grandmother shows up out of the blue and tells her that she is actually the princess of a small country, she is not so much surprised as she is upset. Mia's grandmother, Queen Clarice Rinaldi, explains that in light of her absent father's recent death, Mia is the rightful heir to the Genovia throne, and she will have to decide if she wants to make her claim by Genovia's Independence Day, which is in three weeks. Mia's life is thrown upside down, trying to juggle school, the extracurricular demands of her needy best friend Lily, and now princess lessons, which she must keep a secret. She also gets a makeover determined by her grandmother, and at first doesn't like all of the unwanted attention it brings, until her crush, Josh, asks her out to a beach party. At the beach party, Mia hopes to get her first foot-popping kiss from Josh, but they are followed by the paparazzi, and loving the attention, Josh kisses her in front of all the cameras. In an effort to escape the media frenzy, Mia runs to change her outfit and is set up in front of the cameras again, this time by Lana, Josh's ex-girlfriend. Not only is Mia humiliated, she has disappointed her grandmother after making so much progress, and Lily turns on her out of jealousy. Mia doesn't think that she can take on the responsibility of being a princess and will renounce her claim to the throne, announcing her decision at Genovia's Independence Day Ball. Realizing how much she will disappoint her grandmother, Mia plans to run away the night of the ball, and as she is packing, she finds a note from her father in his diary, which he passed down as her birthday present, knowing that she would need guidance as she made her decision. The one piece of advice she gets from her father helps her to realize that she needs to stop thinking about herself and worrying about being thrown in front of the public. Mia arrives at the ball just in time to claim the throne, now excited to lead and follow in her father's footsteps. As soon as school is over, she makes the trip to Genovia with her cat, Fat Louie, by her side. I keep wanting to call this country Andalasia. I, I'm just <laughs> telling you right now, there is a chance that by the end of this episode, you will have to correct me no less than three times. I would love if they existed in the same plane. In the same niche. So, I mean, they, there's always this talk that, like, all of the Pixar films are woven together. There's a part of me that wants to believe that somewhere in Disney, Genovia and Andalasia are somewhere in the same DCU. We got the MCU, the DCU. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Andalasia is the animated portion of it. But it's still... It's you have still to go a through a whole vortex to get there. Genovia, you just get on your new private jet. Yeah. But I, the whole time I kept, I wanted to be like, no, 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 shh, it's Andalasia. I, for <laughs> some reason, I have Andalasia on my mind, even though I know it's Genovia. I'm surprised I didn't slip up and say Genoa. What that, the hell is Genoa? That's where my family's from in Italy. Oh. I learned that's not something how you new say today. it in Italy. I have had in a very Italian. interesting 10 minutes here on <laughs> Monoreal Radio. Well, to get back to the film... Okay, yeah. Let's let's actually talk about what we're here to talk about. Yes, because I kept the plot very simple just with regard to the Cinderella story part of it. There were characters that I left out which sort of affect the plot and I just tried to keep it as bare bones as possible because I find it hard to believe that not many people have seen this film. Yeah, I mean, listen, I saw it for the first time this year so that we could discuss the film, but I am not in that target demographic. So I am not rushing to the video store to watch The Princess Diaries. So I'm probably in the minority of people, certainly in the minority of Disney fans, who had not seen this movie prior to, you know, its 20th anniversary. Wow, I didn't even realize that it was 20 years. I hope they do something big, like with D23. I hope Julie Andrews does something. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Julie Andrews is pretty good about stuff like that, right? I mean, I know that she's basically retired at this point. She's 85 years old. But I feel like, I mean, maybe it's different because Mary Poppins is Mary Poppins. But I get the feeling that she does hold Disney fairly close to her heart. We know that she did not participate in Mary Poppins Returns, but that had nothing to do with anything more than not wanting to take the spotlight away from Emily Blunt, which I do give her a lot of credit for. Right. I mean, like I said, she was semi-retired when she got approached about this and she agreed to do it, likely because it's Disney and you don't say no. And same with Anne Hathaway. She still very much embraces it. You know, it's not like a Miley Cyrus situation where she's totally shunned her early Disney days. I mean, right. Hannah Montana is completely different, but... You know, Anne Hathaway's gone on to win an Oscar. Yeah. And, you know, she she still gets off her high horse and acknowledges that she did this film and that it has a huge fan base. Well, I believe this was her film debut. I mean, this really was what kick-started her career. I mean, what... I mean, could you imagine your first film not only being a Disney film, but being a Disney film with Julie Andrews? I mean, think about that for a minute born in New York City. Her mother's an actress. I don't think it's that far-fetched for her to just land something like this. She was actually on her way to New Zealand to do an indie film when she booked this. She stopped in LA for a couple of days, did a couple of auditions, and they wanted her to come back in. And she couldn't do it because she was committed to the other film, but her first audition was enough to seal the deal. Could you imagine that, like, I'm just going to stop off in L.A., audition for a Disney film, and then go to New Zealand? That's what I'm saying. All right. Born and raised in New York to an actress. Probably attended a few private schools, so this wasn't so far-fetched for her to play a kid in private school. All right, let's talk about this. Because the film really does start with her getting ready for school, and she, one of the first sets you see, other than the firehouse that they live in, which is not as cool as the Ghostbusters firehouse. Uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. It's the coolest thing since Hey Arnold. Bite your tongue. No, I will bite nothing. I will bite nothing. This is, I think, what hooked me on this movie from the jump, is her bedroom. So this is where the two demographics are just so... So insanely different. It's the cool. First of all, the house is so cool. Her mom is an artist, so she's got paintings everywhere and all of these sculptures that she's made herself. I love that there's different floors of the house, that she's got her bedroom on the top floor. Not only does she have a bedroom, she has a loft and a tower. We had a slimer and a containment <laughs> unit. You're not going to get me. I am going to die on that hill. But, yeah, it is a, but it is a great set. What's interesting is that they did, I, I mean, I, I believe that there, there's no way they actually shot inside of this building. But the set itself, what it does impress me about it is how functional it really is. Um, and I, it, it does look like somebody renovated a firehouse. It is very, it's a very impressive set. I don't know. I was actually trying to find out if they did find... Because San Francisco is such an artsy town. I believe this place may have existed. Or, I mean, if they didn't get to shoot at the actual location, I have to assume that they saw something that inspired doing the house like this. What's funny about it, too, is that this was initially called the Princess of Tribeca. And 
it was supposed to take place in New York. So maybe oh. it was the Ghostbusters firehouse. Can you imagine if they had done that? So in okay, so in Ghostbusters, the only shot of the firehouse done in New York is the exterior. Is the exterior. The Everything interior else is was done in L. No, it was done in L.A. They found an abandoned firehouse in Los Angeles, and that's the inside of the Ghostbusters firehouse. But you could get away with it because they were built around the same time. So even though they were on completely separate coasts, it's perfectly conceivable that the interior that you see would be the interior of that house that you see in New York. Do you get what I'm saying? So the, the, the architecture very much the same, but this is, I did not expect this much Ghostbusters and I am not complaining about that. But my point is we get the firehouse. Now we get her to school. I find it hard to believe that in such a precocious, pretentious private school that the kids would have this much liberty with their lockers because the, the and when I say they decorate the lockers, everybody had a picture or a mirror or something stupid on the inside of their locker door. These lockers remind me of ones that you have seen in literally every high school movie that ever existed. Like I, for kids that have to wear uniforms to school, you think that the school itself would be more uniform. What a thing to get hung up on. Well, you know why? Because Disney is so, I mean, over the course of their history and going back to the Walt days, they are so careful with setting up a world that's believable that I kind of felt like I'm seeing the high school in Can't Hardly Wait or the high school in Fast Times or the high school in literally any film that's ever had a high school in it. Yeah, to me, it reminds me of She's All That. But I feel like more specifically, this is such an L.A. thing, especially to have those lockers outside. San Francisco actually gets very cold. So I'm surprised that they would have that as an option year round. Well, we saw the same thing in Teen Beach. Teen Beach, their cafeteria is outside. I think some of their lockers were outside as well. So, I mean, being in the Northeast, perhaps it's something that's so unique to us. Maybe it's not so unique out there. I'm just surprised that for a private school where kids have to wear uniforms, that you would be able to like put paint and stickers and tape and markers on the outside of the locker door. The stickers, yes, because those are going to be permanent. But everything else, I kind of feel like even though it's a private school, anything goes. Because when you think about the classes that Mia's taking, they are all heavily arts-based. Like, you don't see her sitting through a math class or a science class being bored. You see her in music. You see her failing at sports and gym. Have you ever seen anybody have so many gym classes in a film? No. Okay. And that's going to pose my first question to you. I want to pose a question to you. Because I understand that we are setting up Mia, right, as somebody that is socially awkward, kind of physically awkward. Um, she doesn't fit in with the A-listers as they refer to themselves in the film. Is she too much of a calamity too early? See, that's a great question because there's a lot of things that I find that don't jive with her sometimes. Right. Um, like, for example... Not adept at sports, at school sports, 
but she's got a job at a rock climbing facility. Right. And she runs up the, the rock wall. And she rides ease. and she rides that little moped to school. Yeah. So I don't know that I really buy that she doesn't have athletic abil- ability when she has demonstrated in so many other ways. What I think that they're trying to set up, I mean, they definitely set up that she's socially awkward in spades, but they don't really set up the brainiac either. Because like I said, they're not showing any of those academic classes. And I think that's by virtue of the setting. I think that it's, you know, San Francisco is more of an artsy town. So I will buy all of that. But I don't know why. I I don't know. Maybe because they thought she would be less likable if she were the nerd. So here's the thing. Like, I I don't mind that they didn't focus screen time on that because this movie has a runtime of I think an hour and fifty seven minutes. So I don't it's need just to shy of two, yeah. So I don't need to see five to ten minutes of her doing well in biology. Like I kind of know and maybe it's because you've seen these characters a hundred times, because none of these characters are really that unique. Other than the fact that they're royal, none of these characters are very unique. So you've seen it a hundred times. So for the sake of keeping the pace and and the, the story moving forward, I don't necessarily need to see it. Um, that's not egregious to me, but I think that they almost try too hard to make her so awkward. And, and that's not a knock at Anne Hathaway because I actually think she was great in this movie and I don't necessarily think it's a shot at Gary Marshall because he's directing the script that he has in front of him which was adapted off of a book I don't know if you know that. no I I, well yeah I read the opening titles um (laughs) but I kind of got the feeling that you you didn't need to like convince us that she's a calamity I'm gonna say it and, and maybe this is mean look at her just look at her at the beginning of the movie. All right, I, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but this is a film, so you are supposed to judge a book by its cover. Just look at her. You know what she's going to be going into the movie. You want to put in the scene where she's screwing up in the gym class. Meanwhile, as long as you showed up to gym, you didn't have to be athletic. Believe me, I saw a lot of people that were had that had the grace of a refrigerator that passed their gym class I I thought it was strange that like unless she participated and like got a hit in softball that that she was gonna flunk gym I mean she at least showed up right I like you want to put her in that setting okay fine um but just the constant awkwardness I felt came off a little too forced like we didn't need to see it that often yeah, there was a certain amount of, okay, we get your point. We we don't need to keep beating this. Um, but I think that may have come from them just trying to break out of that archetype where, you know, you're talking about her appearance. Usually this, the, the deal with a character like this is that they care more about having that extra time to study than putting the effort into their appearance. So... I kind of get that they're trying to to break her out of that. Um, it, here's what I would have done because I have some other some other issues with 
the way that they're setting all of this up. Okay. And I feel like this could solve both mine and your issues with okay. it. Okay. Um, I feel like Queen Clarice just kind of shows up out of the blue. I mean, when Mia and Lily meet and they're on their scooter ride to school, they literally cross cross paths with her grandmother because yeah. you see the limo go down the street behind them. Um, but other than Mia getting to be a certain age, and this is why she has to stake her claim on the throne, and then we find out that her father had passed away two months ago, so she's the next heir. You know, they do cover their tracks as far as Mia's timeline and why this decision has to be made now. But instead of her long-lost grandmother just showing up and saying, here, you're a princess now... I feel like it might have been more effective, and this would address your issues too, if the paparazzi started following her from the jump because they knew. I mean, when you think about it, and this is something that I I feel like they do a good job throughout the course of the film, like peeling back the layers of the onion as far as her father and mother's story. You see, we meet the mother, and she's a single parent, and we see that, you know, she hasn't, she's not struggling to raise Mia. Right. They're closer in age. They have a relationship like a Lorelai and Rory from Gilmore Girls. They're they're pretty close. Um, and you just know that her father's never been around. You later find out that because the mother is such a free spirit, she never wanted to marry into the royal family and they got divorced and it was this huge scandal. So wouldn't you think that either the people of Genovia or the surrounding countries would have known about this history and know that he's got a girl somewhere, and especially now with the technology, tracked her down. So long story short, I feel like it would have been more effective to have the paparazzi start stalking her, and and maybe she feels like she's being followed a little bit but doesn't really catch on to what's happening, and then her grandmother explains why this is happening to her instead of just showing up and dumping this in her lap. Well, you just said it perfectly, if it happened now. Happening 20 years ago, the world was not that small. So finding somebody on the web or, or being able to track somebody down was so much harder then than it is now. It's not so much that I needed the paparazzi chasing her right away. I don't even care about how quickly Julie Andrews comes into the film, as abrupt as it is. They do enough to fill in the gaps and explain why she has to make such a hasty decision. They go out of their way and explain why they didn't bring it up to her, why they were going to wait, why they must tell her now because the father died. Uh, like, I'm good with all of that. It's just the over-the-top clumsiness that is Mia. I think it just lingers on a little too long. I think of all things, that's probably the most egregious thing that the movie does. I have a few other notes as we kind of delve into, you know, especially when she does find out that she's royalty. I have some notes on that as well. But believe it or not, I have no problem with any of the things that you just mentioned. I'll buy the notion that, yes, 20 years ago, technology is not what it is. They're not going to track her down. But I guess I'm thinking in terms of when you think of Prince Harry and William, the obsession over them and their lives. That's what I'm thinking of here. Like, 
wouldn't somebody have wanted to find out what happened to the kid? Unless that was all covered up too. That might have been something that I I got the feeling nobody knew that that child existed other than the queen. Other than the parents and the queen, nobody knew. But I will agree with you, regardless of how her grandmother shows up and finds out, yes, the beginning does tend to drag with all of the clumsiness. And the other thing that I feel like makes it drag is, I don't know that I buy this invisible thing. I mean, yes, Mia gets sat on, which I find a little far-fetched and ridiculous. Th- th- these are the things I'm talking about. But we see her in these classes with literally the same people, and they know her enough to make fun of her. So how is she also invisible? Especially because, as you pointed out, the school's not that big. Right. I mean, look, listen, I, I understand her desire to want to be invisible if she's the one getting picked on, but it's almost just, I mean, she at one point says, as if I'm not a freak enough, it's, it's she's so content with being, as she, you know, a self-proclaimed freak, that if you're so content with it and you've accepted it, then don't be self-conscious about it. You, you've made the decision to be this way consciously. You know what I mean? Like, I had kids I went to high school with, and you kind of just knew, like, well, that's the artsy kid, and this is the athletic kid, and that's the kid you don't... That's the kid that wears a trench coat in July. Stay away from that kid. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, but they kind of embraced what they were. That kid made a conscious decision and wore it like a coat of armor. Like a very thick, leather, hot coat of armor. And they let us know that they did. So maybe I'm taking my own experiences, which actually were happening at the same time, because technically speaking, you and I were the same age as Mia when this movie came out, 15 years old. So, like, I guess I'm taking my own experiences and sort of placing them in here. So that's where I don't necessarily buy her out of the shoot. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, she's trying to be this way, and yet also is a victim in her own in her own observation it's there's just a lot with her in the beginning that i'm not going to say it's off putting but i i'm not i'm not on board with her 100% right it's not to say that she's dislikable because i mean Obviously, you want to root for her and not just because she's the protagonist, but she does give us enough reasons to want to champion her uh, and and care about her story arc. Um, No, but I get what you're saying. And I mean, I guess what I like so much about Mia and, and really what makes her so relatable to me is that I just wanted to get through it. Like, I was involved in a lot of extracurriculars. You know, it, it was participate, get into a good college, get a job. That was just kind of like my tunnel vision getting through school. I wasn't the nerd. I certainly wasn't popular. But, you know, I wasn't picked on the way that she was. But I just I just wanted to be done. I didn't hate school, but I was just like, I, I just want to move on, go to college, get a job. Like, I just wanted to work. So I feel like that would have been enough for Mia without all of the, like the clumsiness, okay, fine, but without all of the merciless teasing. Just pick one or the other, you know? Let her be awkward, let her internalize it, let her want to be invisible just so she can move on with her life. But you don't need to add, you know, and and that's the other thing. I don't know that I buy Mandy Moore as a mean girl ever either. Um, 
she's she's fine. You know what it is? If she hadn't later become Rapunzel, I'd probably buy her a little bit more. But again, you and I are you and I are focusing on different things when it comes to what we believe is egregious in this film. Um, we'll talk about the characters more. We've got to move on here. But I actually want to. That actually is a good springboard because you yourself said that she just wants to get through it, right? And she's conscious of the fact that. She is awkward. She is getting teased. She wants to make out with the boy because she keeps having these visions. You would think that when yep. her grandmother yep. arrives and says, hey, guess he what? got the literal keys to the kingdom. You're a flipping princess that she would eat this up because it doesn't matter what the rest of them think because she is a legitimate princess. And she has a panic attack over it and m- on multiple occasions runs away. You think she'd be thrilled because she's finally somebody. For someone who is so conscious of the fact that they're nobody, you think that she would revel in the fact that she's somebody and maybe stick it to the rest of those kids that gave her a hard time for so long. Not at all. We are totally and completely now on the same page this has always been my gripe with this movie is you literally have everything you have your out handed to you on a silver platter what kid who had such a terrible day at school even if that wasn't your every day even if it was just the one day where you were mortified wouldn't you be like, okay, yes, Grandma, get me out of here. Listen, I had a good day today in my mid-30s. And if somebody said, hey, guess what? <laughs> You're the prince of this country in some uh, in the middle of some ocean you've never heard of. Bye. I'd, bye. Adios. I'd be jumping up and down right now. Yeah, her reaction to the news just feels completely off. They try to cover it up with the throwaway line where Mia says, I want to remain invisible. I don't want to be in a public position. Um, you know, and they've done a good job of setting that up because her her first class is the debate and she can't even get through that. She gets sick. So I'll buy into the notion that you can't handle being a public speaker. But again, you're a princess who cares what anyone else thinks. Well, this is where, again, I have problems. I want to be invisible, but I want the hot boy to make out with me in the courtyard in front of the entire school. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the vision she has a few times. So do you want to be invisible or do you want to be popular? And I feel like that question doesn't ever truly get answered. That's a really great point. I think they it would have been more effective if they had just sort of skipped over that initial gut reaction and they went straight for... Lady, you haven't been involved. You haven't even sent me a Christmas present my entire yes. life. Who are you to show up and tell me this? I don't know if I want to just go with you on it and disrupt my life and my my plan for myself. Compounded with getting mad that her mother lied to her this whole time. All of this, I believe. Yeah. All of that, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. It's sort of a cliche response, but I think it would have been more effective if they had just jumped to it instead of this whole, 
I, I don't want to be a princess because I'm scared to talk to people. Yeah, that I thought was a little weak. Of all of the reasons why you wouldn't want to be a princess, I felt that that was just a little weak. Um, but here we are now. We're getting into these princess classes. And this is where Julie Andrews really does surprise me. I mean, she's great. We know she's great. She's practically perfect in every way. She, what's What's to be surprised about? Because she's funny and i don't mean that she's not funny her snark in mary poppins is second to none but when she does the slouch your shoulders like this it's so i don't want to say it's well no i will i'll say it's out of character because to me now given i have not sat there and pined over the film catalog of julie andrews uh over the course of my life but I know Mary Poppins, I know Sound of Music. There's sort of a there's sort of a vision that you get in your mind when you think of Julie Andrews. Comedienne is not one of them, and she pulls it off very well in this movie. I will certainly give you that. The physical comedy was unexpected, but when she's going through how to sit, how to wave, how she needs to dress and compose herself. I mean, there's nobody else that could have done it. Agreed. That I agree with. The other thing that sticks out to me here as the movie moves on is not only do we have the drama, I guess, I don't know what else to call it, the drama of um, Anne Hathaway's character, Mia, going through her princess lessons, but now you have her mother who thought enough to go speak to her teacher about the vomiting during debate class and walks away with the guy's phone number and a date. Her mom's batting a thousand. I just don't understand how a parent who seemingly is intelligent, because I think her mother is, where she thinks that dating a teacher is not a conflict of interest. And not only is it not a conflict of interest, but she goes, he doesn't have tattoos, he doesn't have piercings, he doesn't run away. Like, she just, mama don't care the effect that this is going to have on her daughter at school. I mean, we've sort of established that the mom is a free spirit. And again, this is something that they did in Gilmore Girls because Lorelai dated one of Rory's teachers, but that's it. The mom is looking at it from a selfish point of view of, you know, I gave up my life to raise you. I haven't had a partner in a very long time, and now I'm thinking about me. And I guess that's it, is that in, in both situations, you think that your kid is old enough to handle it when they're 15, 16 years old, and they'll be mature about it. But no, they still have to go to high school where everyone's going to know about it. Doesn't yeah. matter how old you are. It's still going to be awkward and even worse so when you're older. Well, the other thing is, as you just said, her mentality is, I'm, I have to think for me. You weren't thinking for me when you, you yourself said, can you imagine me walking behind somebody for the rest of my life? You, you, you didn't think about me when you made that decision? When you kept the princess from her native land, when you kept the princess from her father, from her grandmother, from all the benefits that would be, be you, you, you let her go through this very, very awkward high school experience. Too awkward. It's too awkward. Um, 
you you weren't thinking for yourself through all of that? I mean, they do cover it and say that they wanted to give Mia a normal life. And I hear what you're saying, but I really don't think Mia would have a case in that regard because it's not like her mother was a struggling, starving artist. She not only has a roof over their head, she's got a great house in a great city. It's it's not like she had a tough go of it where you could make the argument that a life in the palace would have been better. It would have been easier, but I mean, you know, who's to say, even if Mia had a life with her father and, and both parents under the same roof, if her mother was miserable, who's to say that that would have been a better life for her? Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on here, I want to point out a joke because I'm interested in getting your say on it. We, we meet Joe, the chauffeur. Joe's great. I gave him no love in the plot. He's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, eventually we'll discuss character more. I mean, here's the thing. We like to talk about the plot on this show, and then we have a whole conversation about character. There is not much to this plot. Okay? And I don't mean that offensively. It's it's Cinderella. It's she's all that. It's the ugly duckling. Okay, it's we've seen it so many times, so it's sort of impossible to get through the plot without discussing the characters because the characters are what make the movie special. Um, but they don't do anything to move the story forward. No. Except Lily, because she's kind of an antagonist, but we're going to get to that after you talk about this joke. The joke is when Mia's starting to go through her princess lessons, and Julie Andrews, you know, Clarice, says, I don't want to ever see those shoes again. Because she's got like these blocky, they almost look like... Uh, Doc Martens? Yeah. And or like a, like a hush puppy? I don't know. They look like uh, orthotics. She's just like, I don't want to <laughs> see them anymore. Yeah, and no, they get her... Doc Martens are more combat boots. These are, yeah. Whatever they are, they're blocky. You'd, she doesn't want to see her wearing them. So she sends Joe, the chauffeur, who's also the head of security, out to go buy the shoes. And he says, interesting city, this San Francisco. When I purchased these pumps, they asked me if I wanted them wrapped or if I wanted to wear them out. I still think this joke is funny. It lands. It totally lands. And this is also the perfect example of how the setting works so much better. I mean, you were appalled to find out that this was supposed to take place in New York City. But this whole scene just proves how much they are using San Francisco to their benefit because Mia's changing in the back of the car. Not funny. When Joe's hitting these rolling hills of San Francisco, very funny Funny. because it's tossing her around. But that joke doesn't really work anywhere else i mean it it could now 20 years later but san francisco was known for being that progressive accepting anything goes kind of city but do people still find that joke funny this this is part of the question is uh, of does the movie hold up it that joke was meant to get a laugh now here's the thing comedy's dead in 2021 you can't make fun of anybody you can't laugh at anything so, which is stupid, and that's why Mel Brooks doesn't make movies anymore, other than the fact that he's in his 90s. Though I think that if that man could still be funny, if he was allowed to be funny, because you're not allowed to be funny in 2021, did I mention that before? He would still make movies. I would trade a Kardashian for George Carlin I in a would, second. 
I would trade a Kardashian for yesterday's egg sandwich, okay? And get Kris Jenner on the phone because I think I can work that trade out. She'd sell her kids for anything if she gets her 15%, please. But with all of that being said, is the joke still funny? Or is this hypersensitive, hyper-aware culture going to sit there and say, that's not funny anymore? That's my point. Is this still funny? I think the joke is still funny. I think it's funny, but I don't think that the reasons people wouldn't find it funny is because of everybody being so woke now. I think it's more that because things have progressed and because it's much more normal now and it's become mainstream, it's not something that was isolated to parts of San Francisco, parts of New York City, parts of Miami. Um, You know, at the time of the joke, it was unique to the setting and the place that they're in. Right. And that's what made it so like, oh my God, did they really, you're, you're more laughing at the shock value. That's what it is. There it is. There's no more shock value to it, but it still lands. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you mentioned Lily before. Let's talk about Lily here. Um, because as we, you know what, at this point, the, the hell with it. We're just going to talk about the characters of Bizarre as we talk about the well, plot. It's impossible not to do it at this point. Besides Paolo, she is the one character who has to actually do with the story. Yes. Her function in Mia, Mia's life is directly related to what happens to Mia. Everything else, the, the characters are just there making the story rich and they're funny and they're populating the world but nobody really does anything to affect Mia. Other than Lily. I mean you could say yeah her grandmother but her grandmother showing up is not enough. And Josh a little bit but there's no real antagonist to Mia other than Mia standing in her own way. Lily is interesting because she's supposed to be there to keep Mia grounded um even though Lily is kept in the dark for the first part of Mia's training, you know, and and I'll buy into that. That's fine. Uh, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But Lily just goes way too far, and yes. then becomes such a hypocrite. And I, and I get it. You know, Lily is an activist, and she's got her friend who believes in her and supports her, and is going to partake in all of these activities. But okay, you get mad that. Mia's getting a little bit busier and she has less time for you. Okay, fine. But clearly she's changed her whole appearance and she's going through something. So for somebody who fancies themselves so caring, why was your reaction to get mad at her when she gets her makeover? Not to say, hey, are are you really okay? What's going on with you right now? And then when she finally forces it out of Mia her tune completely changes and she starts kissing her butt. So this is my note. It seems unmotivated. Her attack on Mia seems unmotivated because when Mia was the ugly duckling and Lily got to ride in the limousine, that's cool. The minute that that Mia... Listen, Anne Hathaway is a lovely woman. She's, She's not the ugly duckling. So once they pretty her up, for a lack of better term and now she's the swan, all of a sudden now Lily doesn't want to ride in a limousine. She rode in it yesterday, doesn't want to ride in it today. Here's my question, though. It seems unmotivated because it happened very fast. Is this perhaps an issue with the... 
I'm not going to say the pacing of the film. Is it an issue with the undefined passage of time? Because we know that she's going through these princess lessons. We see her get yelled at by the machine, telling her stay off the grass. A, a, you know, a number of times she has the makeover with Paolo. We assume this is two or three days. No, it's but, about three weeks. That's the point, though. I'm sitting here thinking this is two or three days. And no, they do set that up in the beginning when when Mia's up in her her tower and her mom is negotiating and mediating between the two of them. She does say, you know, just give it to the ball. And they do establish that the Genovia Independence Day ball is about three weeks from now. The ball's three weeks. This is not the ball. When is this in the timeline? That's the question. Right. Are we a few days in? Or are we a few weeks in? That's the question. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. where it's like, as much as I want to sit there and say that Lily's character seems like she jumped at something here, I don't necessarily know that I can say with 100% certainty that she did. Does, does that make sense? Like, that's where, I, you know, in asking the question, I wonder who is to blame here? Because I feel like you could have done a montage of Lily, or of uh, Mia for that matter, going through her classes balanced against getting home late at night. Maybe her schoolwork's falling behind, and perhaps she is falling behind with commitments that she made to Lily. None of that happens. It just seems like, okay, two days later, I'm pretty, and now you're mad at me. It, it seems like there's something that's missing here, and I'm not sure... Who is at fault or why that happens? Right, because we know Mia's juggling a lot. We know eventually she's going to drop the ball. And she does, but it's because she's late to her grandmother. And that's that doesn't work either because it's like, yes, she agreed to these princess lessons, but you interrupted her life. Right. So if she's five minutes late to go get her hair done, it's not that big of a deal. Or it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Um but with regard to Lily, you're absolutely right because the only the only sense of the timeline we get is that we know once Lily finds out, she asks her to go on her cable show on a Saturday, which is the same night as the beach party. And obviously Mia goes to the beach party. But we don't know where that Saturday is in the timeline either. We don't know if it's the first week or the second week. Right. And it's almost as if Lily's character loses all credibility because and we're fixed. The minute that she finds out she's a princess, and then even later in the film where um, Mia says she's going to renounce, and Lily goes, but I want you to be a princess. So it's it's what you want. This has nothing to do with what Mia wants. It's what you want. See, if she had hit her with, I want you to be a princess in the beginning, it would have been much more effective because when she finds out it really seems like her only motivation for kissing Mia's butt is because now she think now she knows her friend is royalty because she's always been the friend that's given her the tough love. Like even when they bring up the father, you know, he passed away, but she never knew him. And now she's starting to second guess and obviously not telling Lily what's really going on. And Lily's like, I thought you were over that. Yeah, you're, I don't know, somebody's father died. It doesn't matter. She, had, she hadn't met him. She's never going to. Right. She was very dismissive about it. But, but was really, what was really smart about that interaction 
what was great, actually very, very good screenwriting, was that you get the throwaway line of, he's paying for my school. He made sure I was taken care of, and he would send me lovely gifts. So you saw that somewhere he was involved, and he did want what was best for her. So it starts to kind of unwrap this mystery character who we're never going to see. Right. And it establishes that Mia doesn't hate him. Right. Lily does. Lily's, you know, feminist drive hates him. But to that point, I feel like that should have been what she led with. Oh, my God, you're a princess now. Instead of fussing over the royalty aspect of it, she should have kept the focus to what that meant or what that could mean for her because now her friend has this platform and all Lily wants is a platform. So instead of being jealous, maybe she's starting to use Mia for this instead of being the supportive friend that Mia needs right now. Just like everyone else ends up using her. Yeah. Like Josh for for, you know, his 15 seconds, like Lana to to and yeah, same thing, her 15 seconds too. Yeah, let's talk about that. We all saw this A-list thing coming, right? Uh, the minute that she, the minute that her secret was out, she got her makeover, she's in the limo, like, you see that this transition into the quote-unquote A-list was going to happen. That comes as no surprise. What does sort of surprise me is how when you have this beach party scene, the paparazzi... They are chasing her everywhere. That I buy. The paparazzi killed Princess Diana. They don't care about royalty as long as they get the picture that they can sell to a magazine, or now it would be TMZ. Truth. Um, she's 15 years old. Why are you obsessed with getting a 15-year-old photographed with no clothes on? Yeah, that was taken one step too far. I mean... I get it. They're trying to create a scandal. Right. They set it up that they caught her kissing Josh and then Lana and the other girls fake helping her out and they they literally expose her. But they're trying to make it seem like more happened with Josh than what actually did. I would buy this more if they had set her up to make it look like she was underage drinking and partying on the beach. Or, or if perhaps... Lana and her friends handed her a bottle of beer or a bottle of rum or a bottle of vodka, something with a label on it to set up that photograph. Right, because you would think that Lana would be trying to set her up the entire night. Josh didn't, I mean, you know, it's not like he really cared about her. Right. And his motive wasn't to put her in a poor light. And I don't think that he was really trying to take advantage other than getting his moment in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. But it's just kind of weird that Lana capitalized on that and she wasn't just trying to take her down from the jump. Yeah, I, like I can understand Lana wanting to humiliate her, but the whole notion that you're trying to photograph this young underage princess and catch her with nothing on, and you're going to run that on the front page of the newspaper, just is a little off-putting. Even by even by the standards of 20 years ago, it's off-putting. Right. Just because, given her age. Because she's a minor. Exactly. Right. Um, 
the other thing that they don't really cover is why Joe isn't there because he's supposed to be her security. And the weirdest yeah. thing to me about the whole thing is that her gym teacher pops up out of nowhere and comes to her rescue. Because they don't really establish, I don't think this is like a school function. I thought but it her was. her teacher's there. No, I thought it was a school function because you get this very, you don't want to talk about awkward and out of nowhere, this very strange musical performance with Mandy Moore singing Stupid Cupid. I understand you got Mandy Moore, but... They don't really set up that this little girl group exists in the school other than they're all in music class together. And they're cheerleaders. Why right. not do... Actually, wait, no. Is it a pep rally beach party? Is it supposed to be a pep rally? I, I don't know. But if That's it is, the thing. I be, don't know. There would be cheerleaders there. It just seems like they said, we got Mandy Moore. Well, Jesus, we've got to give her... I mean, she's got to sing. And that's why I don't buy the mean girl thing from here because, I mean, she's a talented actress. She certainly proved that in This Is Us. Forget even that she did Tangled. Yeah, I like Mandy Moore. She sung Candy. That's where we were at her in, in her career at this point. Right. How do you cast her as the mean girl when she literally did the most bubblegum pop song of that era? Well, because if she's trying to just get into a film and Disney can get Mandy Moore, they'd, they'd cast her as a Christmas tree if they had to. They don't care. They just wanted to get Mandy Moore in a movie and she wanted to be in a movie. It's as easy as that. I'm just saying this whole musical number seems to come up out of nowhere. And I, I got the feeling that it's like, well, we got this pop star, so she's got to sing. So just here, throw that in. She can sing. Right. It just seems out of character for the character. Like, nothing set up that this would have happened otherwise. Like, I would um, I would actually buy her more. If you wanted to do something like this, rewrite it. She's not a cheerleader. She's Sharpay. Then this makes sense. I'll buy that. Right? Sure. Then it completely makes sense. This just seems like we got Mandy Morse to put her on a stage, give her a microphone, and let her do her thing. That's kind of how this entire thing came off And then here. you name the band Lana and the Lanettes. Yeah. As Joe puts it, Fontana Banana. Yeah, Fontana Banana and whatever. Um, now we get through this humiliation, and her grandmother is very quick to jump down her throat and judge her and have you know discuss how she has to run damage control with the press. What I don't understand is how Mia does not try to explain this at all. She does not try to explain that she was set up by her classmates or that she was being followed around by the paparazzi or that she was really being stalked by the paparazzi. She kind of just takes it on the chin and renounces her title and her grandmother says, I think that's the right thing to do. Thankfully, Joe comes to the rescue and explains she's 15. She's just 15 years old. She made a mistake. I mean, yes, all of this is true, but... Mia, at this point, has had no problem fighting back against her grandmother, no problem fighting back against her mom. I mean, she's failed every time she's done it. I just don't understand why now of all times is the time you choose not to fight. Because I think she's really hurt by it. It's not just the fact that she disappointed her grandmother, this long-lost grandmother that she has now come to develop a good relationship with and a love for. It's that she's upset that her grandmother didn't have more faith in her because now the guard has sort of 
started to come down on both ends. And I think that she's upset that the queen and princess relationship got put before the grandmother granddaughter thing. And I think that after they had their day out where they really leveled with each other that, you know, Mia wasn't expecting that her grandmother was just going to completely forget their Royal obligation. I think that she really thought they were getting close and that that was going to trump everything else. And perhaps a part of her was relieved because she still does not want to be a princess. This might have been a means to an end for her. Which is kind of an easy out. But what I will say is that just taking it on the chin like that did make me respect her even more. And that's kind of the turning point because up until now, until she makes her big speech at the end with, I think about myself a million times a day. And if I put that energy into thinking about other people, that's what's going to make me a good princess. Right. When you think about it, she really hasn't done anything to win us over. Like, okay, she she does the rock climbing. She's got a good relationship with her mom. She's got a best friend. They have a good relationship. Up until she has the makeover and she signs the autographs for the little girls, to me, she hasn't done anything that's so endearing where it's like, wow, I can really see her her embodying this this what a princess is supposed to be. I, I don't see her embodying a leader in any way. I kind of feel like she's a sweet kid. Yeah. And that's sort of what they hung their hat on. But it's not like in Pretty Woman where Julia Roberts is just so charming. You fall in love with her and you want her to win and you don't care what she does for a living. Well, part of that is because Julia Roberts doesn't really care. That's what makes her endearing and in she's Pretty Woman. And funny. She's very funny, and she doesn't care. Me is funny, but not not like that. No, she's awkward funny. Right. Right, and, I'm, and she's not self, self-absorbed, but she doesn't walk around with the air of, I don't care what you think of me. I'm going to do it anyway because the only the only two moments of weakness quote unquote in pretty woman is when she gets turned away when she's shopping on Rodeo Drive and when she tells Richard Gere that she loves him and he doesn't reciprocate it which obviously is a very hurtful thing so I guess weakness in that aspect is uh, the wrong term, but when she gets upset and she no longer wants to go shopping because she walks into the store because of the way that she's dressed, the sales associates have no interest in helping her, but she redeems it when she goes back and says, you work on commission, <laughs> look at what you missed out on. Right. So like Mia does not really have that moment until Lana gets coned, which, you know, we're going to hear Lana gets coned. <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, that's cool. I think what I like more about that scene, I don't even, like, this is weird, I don't even care that she stood up for herself. I like that Sandra Oh and the rest of the faculty just pretended like they didn't see it because even they don't like Lana. Exactly. And that's where her mother dating the other teacher could have been a huge debacle Mm -hmm. because now he's siding with Mia. 
Yeah, but Lana got coned would have been enough. I didn't need to see, like everything is already turning around for her. You know, she's she's stepping into her role as the princess. She did okay at the dinner. I mean, okay at best. She still had her awkward moment. Again, another pretty woman ripoff where, you know, Julia Roberts is eating the escargot and it flings across the room and Hathaway flings a grape. She lights somebody's arm on fire. Um, I mean, it's very funny. It is. It, it's, well, it's an awkward, funny scene. But we see her starting to turn it around. Right. The Lana gets coned establishes that she has built up her confidence and she can do this now. Right. I didn't also need to see her win at baseball. In yeah. a co-ed gym class, really that whole scene was just so that she could hit Josh with a baseball. Yeah. And and I said it before, and I'll it bears repeating. I don't know one person that failed phys ed. And I know a lot of people that had the grace of a refrigerator <laughs> and didn't fail phys ed. All you kind of had to do was show up and sort of try. No, and then... It's... Like, like, like she, her gym teacher says, Mia, I don't want to flunk you. Hit the ball. I was just going to say that. Where did we get this? I mean, I can see the pass fail because she's inept. But you're putting the entire thing on her getting a home run? That's a little unfair. When she's trying, you can at least pass her on her effort. When she's, she's a human target in soccer yeah yeah that was fine and hey she made like two saves wasn't that enough they they said that she didn't they yeah, were like even can't you block seen... one ball and, and she, she did with her off head the face <laughs> and she took one off the face exactly if that's not grounds for passing i don't know what is i mean i appreciate the fact that it's like okay not everybody's gonna kiss your butt even though you know when it's time for clarice to come down to the school and and gupta Sandra yeah, O yeah. is, is who's great. Sandra O's great. In incredible. She's fawning all over her. So I mean, you kind of see that Mia is going to get this special treatment. So I get it. They need to ground her a little bit, but like everything else is falling apart on her at this point. You know, she's yeah. disappointing her grandmother. She's at odds with Lily. We didn't need. I mean, I guess you have to give her one more win. No, this was about Josh taking a baseball, or in this case, a softball, to the groin. I would buy all of this if her gym teacher was like a role model that she looked up to or somebody that was trying to help her get through the high school process and this was her way of motivating her. Like, no, she's just a background character. Or if it was something that, like a tool that she needed to utilize. Right, to to take the throne like it maybe maybe it's horseback riding or something like a princess needs to know how to ride a horse and that's her big challenge in gym class. I got one. It's a private school. No, I got one horses. better for you. She could play field hockey and you could even you could even translate that into croquet if you wanted to if you're trying to be royal about this archery. Yes, any of those things, any of those things would have been just fine. Um, okay. Uh. I mean, we're just about at the end of the movie here. Um, I feel like she has the moment where she finds the note from her father in the diary. And it's a, I think it's actually a very powerful scene. Yes. Um, I think that was completely necessary. Um, 
I didn't need to necessarily see her be unable to drive this Mustang again because she's already proven that she can't drive it up the hills. Though I know we needed to get Joe in here one more time and he's going to come in and save the day and you still crack a smile when Joe comes. Um, I feel like that was a... Sans the car, with the note alone, I felt that that was a good enough setup to get her to that Independence Day ball for Genovia. Right. They could have just cut right to it. Um, even without the car, if, if she had just ran there and showed up soaking wet, you know, like they, they do establish it starts raining. Charlotte says, put your umbrellas up. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a given that it starts raining while she's on her way. So if you wanted to have that moment where she comes in sopping wet, you can still get it. What bothers me more about this is that I sort of wish the father had remained anonymous. I mean, I love the letter. I love the idea of the diary. I mean, the movie is named The Princess Diaries. And other than Clarice packaging this up in the beginning, we don't really see it. So right. I'm definitely happy that we get the payoff. But I didn't need to see her father writing it. I think we just could have held on her reaction as she's reading. Um, I kind of like that he rem- he would have remained an anonymous figure, especially because, like I said, they do such a great job of like peeling these layers back. We know that he's an absentee father. We get that from the single mother who doesn't bash him. Um, she actually gives us some really good insight as to why everything fell apart, why they got divorced. She sort of villainizes herself by doing that and exposing the truth, even though she does say that she was going to tell Mia when she was 18 and let her make her own decision. It doesn't change the fact that the decision was already made Mm -hmm. and Mia had no say in it. Um, You know, and we also get the, your dad's a jerk. He never even talked to you from Lily. Like I said, the feminist point of view of attacking the deadbeat dad. Um, But then we also get Clarice who really like puts the nail in the coffin. And she, she says that even though Mia's mother is not the conventional royal she was still rooting for them as a couple right. and she she recognized the love between them and she still wanted her son to be happy so you have all of these points of view of Mia's father that really for somebody that we see for two seconds we get a very well-rounded idea of who he was and I love that we get this final moment where even though she's never met him, he does give her that one key piece of advice that she needs. And it's the most valuable advice that she's going to get when she's got everybody else in her ear. Well, see, and here's something that it, it works and it fails at the same time. You have Clarice has this heart to heart with um, with Mia and it was, I believe it was before this, actually. I think it was when they had their little girl's day and they went out and had fun, where she said that your father rena- was was prepared to renounce his title because he fell in love with a young painter. But he decided that the, the love he could feel for one or two people uh, could not surpass the way he loved his country. And everybody blamed it on me. So... Here's the thing. 
that works if you're trying to soften this hardened character. What doesn't work is who the hell is everybody? Because this child is hidden. Who's everybody? Right. The mother and the father? Well, they agreed on it. So it's you, the mother, and the father. You're the only three, maybe in Joe, but Joe Joe sides with you anyway. Who is everybody? She she acted it, it's almost as if I would have bought that more if you were softening a character who is hardened because she took one on the chin when it came to her people. Like, they all knew in Genovia that this lost princess existed. And she took it on the chin to protect the future king's reputation. It it leaves a lot to be desired because there's a lot of questions as to who is everybody. Right, because it's certainly not Mia's mom when she's saying, I couldn't have married into royalty anyway. It's right. not like she was being treated like she could never fit in and right. that she wasn't good enough. And it's not the father because he chose Genovia over his family. I mean, they've said Genovia is a very small country, but I feel like that's kind of a leap to just assume that because it's a small town, everybody's up in their business. Yeah, it, it, it it's I mean it's not a town, it's a kingdom. It's it's still a country. It's a small country. It left more questions unanswered than it did answer. Does you get what I'm saying? Right. And without spoiling the second one which we are going to discuss next week obviously. Obviously. I feel like that's something that they really could have opened up and explored a little bit more is the father's backstory. I mean, we know that he was very conflicted in making this decision, choosing his family or the throne. But, you know, maybe there's a lot more to be explored there. Yeah. All right. So now they have their Independence Day ball. She assumes the title of Princess of Genovia. They say it just like that in the first and second film with that accent, Princess of Genovia. And she gets her foot-popping kiss from little Matt Barzell. <laughs> and when she kicks over the breaker, you get this, you know, she's symbolic. All it's She's all that, but it's symbolic and the lights come on, the fountain goes. It would have been more on brand if it turned a sprinkler on and just soaked the rest of them. Or, or or soaked her in little Matt Barzell from top to bottom because she is such a calamity. I actually, for somebody who I think was too clumsy for the whole movie, I would have been fine with that being the end as, a per, as opposed to her doing the robot dance because it would have been like, you know what? She's a princess, but you know, this is what she is. If you're going to go, if you're going to jump into the deep end, then just do it. I actually, I agree with you. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, yeah, I didn't need the dancing. I didn't need the voiceover. But yeah, that element of some things never change. Yes. And you may be a princess now, but you're still Mia. And and that's the whole point, right? Yes. Is that she has to figure out how to fit into both roles. And her grandmother has to learn to accept both roles. Yeah, for sure. All right. We've talked about basically all of the characters that were worth talking about except Joe. We really haven't discussed Joe, so I want to talk about him now because I think he's the best character in this movie. The words were coming out of my mouth. Saving the best for last. That's why. I mean, I don't want it to sound like he's not an important character, but it's like we said before, he doesn't do anything to move the story forward until he goes to rescue her out in the rain. Right. Otherwise, like, yes, he's security. 
yes, he's her driver, but that's it. There's nothing really that he does to to affect the plot. To me, though, he's the most endearing character. Because like, he believes in her when nobody believes in her. For all intents and purposes, Joe should really be the princess at the end of the movie. If we're, <laughs> go- <laughs> if we're going by endearing qualities, <laughs> he's the one you want to root for. But instead... I'm rooting for him and Clarice. I I love that. And it seemingly comes out of nowhere when he's... By the way, that line. Doesn't that sound so salacious? Like, you've been wearing black for too long. Yeah. Um, Wow. I'm going to disagree with you. Um, I think it's great that they end up together at the end of the movie, or at least we believe that they do. There's obviously a second. Maybe we delve into that a little bit more. I'm not sure that a member of the royal family is going to date her head of security. That just seems, again, like there's a conflict of interest here that we are just willing to overlook. Well, because he's been by her side the entire time. Yeah, it's called a bodyguard. (laughs) No, but you can tell it's more than that, that he's their caretaker. He true. I mean, you know, he truly cares for Mia. He does. Well, and that's that's where he is such a great character. That's where he's so endearing because he like almost from the minute he meets her almost becomes that paternal figure that she has yet to have in her life. Oh, see, that's interesting. I I never really even picked up on the paternal thing. I mean, you're right. He is, but, um, I just, I loved that relationship from the beginning. Like he knew this was going to be a task and, you know, really instead of forcing Mia, he's the one who's trying to genuinely help her get out of her own way. Disney is in love with setting up these great relationships with chauffeurs, blank check, saving Mr. (laughs) Banks, Princess Diaries. This this is as on brand as a dead parent. And we got that too. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's a sounding board character. But yeah, they take it one step further into the therapist zone. You're right. It's on brand. Regardless, Joe's fantastic. Hector Elizondo plays him uh just perfection. I don't care that they practically recycled the character from Pretty Woman. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the comparisons for a second, right? A lot of the cast members from Pretty Woman show up in this film. Gary Marshall directed both. Cinderella, the ugly duckling. Uh, duckling. We've talked about them a few times so far. Is this, I'm going to ask you this question, and I'll ask you, the the listener as well, you can let us know your answer, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monreal Radio, email us monrealradio at gmail.com. Is this too much like Pretty Woman? Is this unique enough where you don't immediately think this is just the PG-rated or the G-rated version of the R-rated Pretty Woman? That's a great question because we got into this a couple of weeks ago when we did Monoreal Radio Roulette and we landed on Teen Spirit. Yeah. And 
we did a deep dive into those teen comedy, the teen rom-coms of the 90s. If Rachel Lee Cook was in it, we talked about it. Exactly. And, you know, how they there were those similar stories of, you know, it's either a, a Cinderella story or the taming of the shrew. That's where, regardless of if it's Pretty Woman, if it's a 90s rom-com, they all stem from that base. And this is no different. What sort of makes it different, and, you know, we we did give Teen Spirit a lot of credit for this, is that they sort of broke out of that mold and they did a lot of unexpected things. Um, what's different about this is that it was a book. So any similarities in the story to Pretty Woman or any of its comparables, I would think are the fault of the book and not the film. What I can't wrap my mind around, and I, I have tried to find this information, is how it went from let's adapt the book. I believe it was the producer of this film who had read the book, got it adapted, and pushed it forward. We know that it was originally supposed to take place in New York. They changed this to San Francisco. I have a feeling that was Gary Marshall's decision because of Pretty Woman. But what I want to know is how we went from let's do this adaptation and recycle almost the entire cast of Pretty Woman because that's where the similarities are. And in certain moments, like when she flips the grape up in the dinner scene and, and the guy catches It's literally the same actor. Yeah. So... I don't I don't know was was this Gary Marshall's way of saying hey I didn't give you speaking lines in Pretty Woman I'm going to give you a a bigger part now I can almost see Michael Eisner pitching this as you did it once with Pretty Woman we've got something that's almost the same do it for kids Well that makes all the sense in the world now or no not Eisner Katzenberg this would have been a cat. No, he left. He left by then. Point. No, this was Eisner. This was Eisner. It reeks of Katzenberg, though. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's why they brought Gary Marshall on. Maybe, maybe they knew they were going to adapt it, and they brought him on for the purpose of, okay, we're going to do the Pretty Woman remake, but make it princessy. But what what they do different enough is weave in this storyline with the father. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I think it's time we move into final thoughts here. Um, I'm going to go first. This is an imperfect movie, which kills our friend Catherine from Detour to Neverland because it's the only movie she's ever seen. She'll tell you that. It's like <laughs> one of like three movies that she's seen, and she loves it. It's, it, is, it is an imperfect movie. When I watch it, there are things, obviously, that I sit there and I question and I wonder why. The way I've discussed the film for the last hour and 20 minutes would lead you to believe that I don't like this movie. And that's not true. I actually think that this movie is a lot of fun. I think that it has rewatchability. I can see where if you were an 8 to 12-year-old girl when the film came out, where you would love this movie. With all of that being said, I think at times the amount of jealousy that happens, it's almost too much. Um, I think the clumsiness at times is too much. 
I think the cast is great. The story's fine. We've seen it a hundred times. I sort of feel like the sum... Sometimes you sit there and say the sum is greater than all the parts. I kind of feel like the sum is as good as all the parts. Um, I think Anne Hathaway's great. I think Julie Andrews is great. I think everybody is very good. I think the characters are fun. And I kind of just think that that's what made it a fun movie. It's not... I understand the mania behind it. I understand where people loved it. I do think that this movie is timeless. I think that a kid can watch this 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And I don't think the movie really ages. I think that it is that timeless. Maybe it's because we've done 140 films on Monorail Radio and because we are a Disney-centric podcast... We've seen a lot of these princess films before, and obviously we've seen a lot of other films because we're going back and delving into Pretty Woman and the Late Julie Cook movies from the 90s. I feel like if you've... If, I don't want to say if you've seen one, you've seen them all, but if you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. It's just, how is this take different than the others? The fact that you have this reluctant princess with this father she never met this long-lost grandmother, that's what makes it different. But I feel like if you stuck a different cast in here, the movie wouldn't be as good. I think it then it's just another movie. I think the cast is as good as the differences when you compare them to the other films. Right. So really the question you're posing is, yes, they did it differently, but did they do it better? And it grieves me to say it, but I think the answer is no. I, I, I don't think this is better than Pretty Woman. Right. I, I agree with everything you said, except that this is a timeless movie. I think as far as a coming of age story, it's timeless for kids. I think that what is kind of upsetting to me now is that I did hold this film in such high regard when I was Mia's age when it came out. I related to it then. I loved it then, but I don't love it the same way anymore because more of the, of the, I mean, obviously more of the problems with the story are more apparent to me now, but I think that's just one of those things that comes with aging. It's not to say that the movie was never good, but I'm looking at it with a completely different set of eyes now and things that I found funny no longer are. I will never understand why we were so obsessed with Eric Von Detten at this point. Who the hell is Eric Von Detten? <laughs> Josh. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh he he was on like every teen beat he, he, everything i never looked at and and up to this point in my life have still not looked at exactly okay exactly and i'm kind of like ladies what are we thinking um you know and certain things that maybe i didn't realize then or was maybe just willing to overlook about the story well actually no that's not true because mia's reaction to finding out that she was a princess after having such a bad day and such an awkward time at school never ever sat well with me that was something that i picked up on back in the day and it still holds true now is that she has the out and she didn't take it um but i feel like 
you know, as much as they're trying to make her decisions so nuanced with all of the back and forth with all of these different relationships that she has, um, it's conflict for conflict's sake. That's kind of how I'm looking at it now. And I don't, you know, again, it had to do with being right at that age. It's a good coming of age movie, but that's not what I like about it. And that is what I liked about it back then. Now I like it for the nostalgia factor. I love it for Julie Andrews. I still love it for Joe. He's he's still a great character. Um, and I think Anne Hathaway was totally charming on it. And you can totally see where this is a springboard for Devil Wears Prada. Because again, same kind of thing, Cinderella story. She goes after the job and then loses everything once she becomes what she sort of feared. All right, let me let me understand this. What has just happened is completely irrational in the last five minutes. You grew up with this film. You loved it as a kid and are now saying... I wouldn't say loved it. I, I enjoyed it and I will say it, it's rewatchable and I will stand by that. I always enjoy rewatching it. I, of the two, have been far more critical of this film for its clunkiness and its warts and I am the one sitting here saying the movie is timeless this is so strange that this has happened I'm saying (laughs) I agree with everything you said but timeless means two different things to us you think it aged and it holds up now yes I think it does culturally but I think there's a cap on the age it's not timeless to me in the sense of you can enjoy this at any age. It's timeless in the sense that a 12 or 13 year old girl can watch it now and relate to it. I see what you mean. Now, let me ask you this. You compare this to some of those really cheesy movies of the 90s. I love how you've named them the Rachel Lee Cook movies, by the way. You've just lumped them in there. If if she was in it and Freddie Prinze maybe was there and you had Sixpence None the Richer... Th- that's that's the okay that's and one movie that was all those movies <laughs> it was one but if you've seen one you saw all of them i think this is better than any of those i think this is pro i mean this i've seen it since because you couldn't believe i hadn't seen it when we discussed it this is better than she's all that it's not as good as pretty woman it's certainly not as good as devil wears prada but I, I mean, I think it's better than those cheesy '90s movies, though. See, you say cheesy, but those high school movies cut deep sometimes. Like they got really mean. Some of them did. I don't think that was one of them. I think I, I'll give you that. This was better in the sense of they cut deep without being over the top, like with the paparazzi thing, like. That was going way too far, but it's not, to me, as bad as making a bet trying to get someone to sleep with you. To me, that's more mean. Exposing that bet is more mean. So as far as this telling that story, they didn't overly sugarcoat it. Like, they didn't completely Disney-fy it. They still had those wow, high school kids are really mean, girls are really mean elements, but 
they weren't coated in pixie dust. So in that regard, yes, it is better because it softens it without making it too difficult to stomach. Sure. We want to know what you have to say about The Princess Diaries. You can let us know your thoughts on it. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks guys, talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you're looking for that touch of Disney, perhaps you're getting married or you have an event coming up, you need save the dates, invitations, thank you cards, whatever it is, Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. You can go see all that she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Okay, news this week. We have a mix of movies and a mix of parks. All of it is very exciting. We have some posters that came out this week, some cast posters for Black Widow. We got another poster for Loki. Um, I think, for Black Widow at least, I think the costumes look really cool on these characters. I mean, ScarJo always looks great on her in her costume. But I mean, I mean, she's just going to wear what she's going to wear, though. No, right? she's gorgeous. But but the costume works, you know, it's it's always been I mean, like, I know they tried to make her sexy and all that, but it works and it's not too over the top. What blows my mind and we have not talked about it yet. And I keep forgetting that he's in this Stranger Things. Yes, he looks awesome. He does. At first scrolling past him, I thought that it was uh, it was Kurt Russell again. But I oh, had, God. At first I thought it was, but I circled back around. I was like, is there some weird lapse in the MCU where we're getting him back? Um, but we're not. That was cool. The Loki poster is interesting because I want to know what that cartoon clock is. Yeah, we we need to unpack a little bit here. That's I, I, at first I was like, is that a mistake? 
Yeah, I thought like it was like some weird stamp that somebody put on there. Yeah, and then I, I, you know, took a closer look at it because you know you're scrolling through the Instagram feed if you're going too fast. But then I, I did a double take and I made the picture bigger, and I was like, "What is it? Like, it literally looks like a misprint." And it, more specifically, the animation looks like um, the the break in the drive the drive-in when they're like go to the snack yes, counter yeah yeah <laughs> or like something out like of roger rabbit right yes which maybe ties into wandavision where they had all of those commercials i'm wondering if there's a tie-in somewhere that we didn't catch i don't think so because feige recently admitted i mean we knew all of those commercials were the big tragedies in her life right but feige recently admitted they were supposed to be uh messages from Doctor Strange and like a lot of things in WandaVision which is why we haven't done our bonus episode review of the series is that a lot of things were supposed to happen and didn't because of time and budget and there's just no excuse for that well I at any rate I'm excited to see what both of these projects turn out to be let's go to the parks let's go to the parks I I can't continue to express for me personally how excited I am with this perspective, albeit slow, return to normal life. Festival of the Lion King has returned. Our friend Lisa Donato Glasner over from the Castle Run posted some incredible photographs. I mean, she takes great pictures. I was going to say, she's crazy talented to begin with. But the sheer joy that she captured, you you can just feel it. I felt like I was there. I choked up. I totally choked up. And I'm not afraid to admit that. But, but I mean, the fact that we have this, the fact that we're starting to see these performers are coming back to work the fact that you're starting to get shows again at disney world it is like such a relief and it's something that i like i felt like we took it for granted for so long um and that'll obviously never happen again but it is just so good to see that this is coming back i can't express how excited i am and I can't express how excited I will be when we are there in November and we get to experience this show again. Did I miss something, though? Did did they not? Because I don't recall them announcing. I, I knew that they were calling the cast back. I knew that they were calling the performers back. But I feel like this kind of came out of nowhere and they just dropped it that all of a sudden it was opening again. Well, Disney likes to do that. They just drop things on you. Yeah. Um, Which is why I'm not convinced that Ratatouille is really opening on October. But speaking of October, well, August. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're ha- going to give us a couple Halloween of Halloween starts before Labor Day in the world of Disney. We got Boo Bash. Now, this, I'm even more excited for this, I think, than I am for Festival of the Lion King because I am excited to see that. I'm excited to see that Disney is going to take more of my money, that we have the <laughs> ticketed events coming back and that you're starting to see park hours get extended and you're going to have these um, seasonal uh, festivals, these seasonal performances. Now they're going to be seasonal cavalcades because we don't have the parades and the fireworks back. But the fact that we're starting to get these seasonal events is very much exciting. And it, I saw a lot 
God, social media is a cesspool. I saw so many people that actually complained. Oh, my God. Then just please just evaporate. Go somewhere else. Get out of my feed. Go away. You don't want to. Then don't spend the money. Don't go to Disney World. For the love of God, just leave the rest of us alone. Let us get on our bus. Go to our compound with our Mickey hats on and our shirts. And just let us live in our bubble. No, and Disney handled this so brilliantly. They did. I appreciate that they did not call it not so scary. Because these same people that are complaining now would have bought the tickets. Half of them have never been to one of these things, mind you. Right, and then they're going to go and complain that I didn't get to do half of the things that I saw on Karen's Instagram. Yes, yes. that's. I think that's what it's about. So... I think it's smart from a business standpoint that Disney covered the tracks by not calling it not so scary, that they are admitting it will be a different version. I don't even know that I can say an abridged version because everything that they've done, like the cavalcades versus a parade, I love the cavalcades. I think that's an upgrade, actually. The only thing I would miss would be the stage show and the fireworks. And that'll... That'll come back eventually. Right, but that's what I'm that's what they're covering here yeah. is that we're not getting those things. We acknowledge it and they are not giving you any false pretense yeah. that you're going to get the whole shebang. But you're still getting the Halloween costumes, you're still getting the trick or treating. You're getting everything but the stage show and the fireworks. And you're getting the cavalcades as opposed to a meet and greet, which I understand. But you're still getting the extended hours in the park. You're still getting the uh, my understanding is that the capacity will still be limited even more so than it is now. So you are looking at shorter wait times, you know, and special decorations and merchandise and food and et cetera and so forth. Disney has done such a good job of giving you, albeit abridged, giving you the Disney experience. I mean, they've done such a spectacular job. When we go in November and they will do some abridged if you know, as you want to call it, or altered or alternate version of the very merry Christmas party, we're gonna pay for it. We're gonna go. We're gonna do it. We're gonna experience it. We don't care. We are just happy to have something back. What I am interested in seeing, my prediction has been that we will have masks on through the end of the year. And it did say, if you read the fine print, it did say that you would have to keep your face coverings on. I suspect that they will do that through Halloween. I'm wondering if by the end of the year, if they're going to relax on that policy. Because we know that they're not doing the temperature checks anymore. The the self-service uh, soda fountains are coming back. Club Cool is reopening. A new Club Cool is opening at Epcot. I'm wondering if by the end of the year, maybe by the time we go, that policy will be more lax. I don't know. I mean, I don't really care one way or the other, if I'm being honest with you. I'm just happy we're going to be there, but I'm curious to see how they play this. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I think that there's a strong possibility we would still be in masks. Not even just because of COVID, but I think that what a lot of people are forgetting is that because we've been in isolation, we really don't have an immune system anymore. The common cold is going to be very bad. The flu is going to be even worse. So 
I actually wouldn't mind wearing a mask to protect from those things. At least through the end of this year. I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. But for the rest of this year, and then you sort of ease back into it and you expose yourself to these seasonal... illnesses, viruses, whatever it is you want to call them. Right. Now, with that said, I'm going to be so happy once we get to Magic Kingdom. I'm probably going to get on the ground and kiss the pavement. I'd be fine with it. (laughs) I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you. But, yeah, I mean, I I think that that's something that not just Disney is going to have to factor in. I I think everybody's got to take it into consideration that you got to build that back up. For sure. Let us know what you guys have to say about the return of the extra ticketed events, the return of the festival, the Lion King, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on the show. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Share the show, rate us on Facebook, follow us on all of that social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And for links to the social media, the email to the show, whatever it is that you need, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.